0: Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel. Uh, I like to call it 2 Samuel. Jason's not doing well, and uh, he loves it when I say 2 Samuel instead of 2 Samuel. I like to say 2 Samuel because I listen to a lot of Alistair Begg, and the Europeans don't say 1st or 2nd or 3rd. They say 1, 2, 3. So there you go. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and honor him. Working our way through the story of David... And we find ourselves really in an in a, in a important passage of Scripture, really, in terms of all the Bible, not just the story of David. So you'll find it on page 271 of your pew Bibles. And if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in him? I have not lived in the house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in the tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from the fallen sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over all... Over my people Israel I will give you rest from all your enemies moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your your body and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be to him a father he shall be me a son when he commits iniquity I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of sons of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's go, Lord in prayer, our Father, we ask you open our hearts that we receive your word, our mind that we understand it, our eyes that we see your glory, our ears that we hear your word, and heed its its word. Our mouth, that we'd speak the truth of the gospel and our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience to a risen Christ. This is your work. And we ask that you would do it. May I decrease so that you can increase. In your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know why we do it, but we do it every election season. We, 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 we will hear uh, uh, politicians make promises that we know, we know they will break but we still believe in anyways. And in fact, I was thinking this week of some of the more famous uh, campaign promises that were broken uh, by elected officials, particularly presidents uh, specifically. The most infamous, perhaps we, should, we could say, at least of, of modern history, is without a doubt, uh, former President George H.W. Bush. And that picture alone, you already know what it is he says here. 1988, Republican National Convention, uh uh, acceptance speech he says i'm and i'm the one who will not raise taxes you know where this is going my opponent now says he'll raise them as a last resort or as a third resort when a politician talks like that you know that's one resort he'll be checking into (laughs) that's not even a funny joke my opponent won't rule out raising taxes but i will and congress will push me to raise taxes and i'll say no And they'll push, and I'll say no, and they'll push, and I'll say to them, you finish it? Read my lips. No new taxes. Well, he raised taxes. (laughs) I don't know what to say. In 1916, run for president against two, uh, uh, one of the incumbent Republican president and the former Republican president, Teddy Roosevelt and uh, Taft, Woodrow Wilson, uh, uh, Actually, 1960, this is when he's running for re-election. He'd already beaten Taft and Roosevelt, I guess. His slogan was, he kept us out of war. Well, if you know your history, 29 days after he was sworn in for his second term, we declared war against Germany. Herbert, Herbert Hoover, 1928, right? Famous, chicken in every pot and, uh, and, or, and a car in every uh, garage, right? And, uh, well shortly after his election the stock market crashed there went a lot of chickens around to pass, pass around well these are probably the three most infamous ones of the last hundred years or so but can i give you an ancient campaign promise that was broken king david in psalm 132 where he states that i will not you see there verse where i will not give sleep to my eyes Or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. Here he seeks that very thing, but he will die without fulfilling that promise. Notice here in the first three verses is David's plan. David's plan is 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 very clear. He wants to build a house for the Lord. Now, since being crowned king, right, we we're kind of new into, at least as the narrative is presented, we're new into the administration of, of David. I like to say it's the first hundred days. We'll see later that the chronology's off a bit, so it's not the first hundred days. But it reads like this is early on in his administration, and he's accomplished quite a bit. He's established Jerusalem as Israel's capital. He had to push out uh, uh people in order to do that he moved the tabernacle and with it the ark of the covenant to to his capital in jerusalem he subdued israel's enemies the philistines the moabites the ammonites and he has united the 12 tribes of israel under one government and so you see there in verse 1 when the king lived in his house House. Now that word house, it's easy to get confused with that word in chapter 7 because it has three meanings. (laughs) You would think someone from TikTok was writing this this, this chapter, right? It has three meanings, one word with three different meanings. One, it refers to David's palace, right? That's what he means here. He is in his palace. Another meaning would be God's temple. David from his house looks over and sees the the insignificant house that God is in and seeks to build God a house. temple, a permanent lodging for God. The third meaning we'll see later on in this passage is it refers to David's dynasty context will give us the meaning of each of those words. And you'll notice there that he lived in his house. The Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. It's easy to overlook that. It's easy to say, well, well, that's good, right? Uh, the days are fight over with. Now, again, we're going to see the days are fighting aren't over with. This passage is likely out of chronological order for theological significance, right? Because in the next chapter, David goes to war. He's going to fight the Ammonites, and the Moabites, and those who aren't right, of course. But here, we need to see that God God gives David rest. And that word rest is a theological term. We'll explore more this evening so we can only talk about it in passing. The story arc of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation covers the issue of rest. Let me just give you a brief, brief, uh, catch you up where this story arc is coming, uh, coming up to, to David. First of all, it's in the story of creation, right? Who rests first? It's God. He rests not because he's tired, but because he is done. And rest draws us to worship because God reflects on his creation. And that is picked up with Sabbath rest, right? You get the Ten Commandments. <coughs> Excuse me. It's just a code, not COVID. Don't panic. And and you know, Sabbath rest, right? And, and the point is, is that God, who is creator, redeemer, gives us rest. It's written in the law itself. And then we see during the Exodus, they, they, they move from Egypt to the promised land. The hope was that God was going to give them a permanent rest. So we get in Exodus 33, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. In Deuteronomy 25, therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, does that language sound familiar? It's almost like we just read it in 2 Samuel 7, 1, right? Very similar language. Likewise, Joshua. Remember, what's Joshua's point is he's going to lead the people of Israel into the promised land to subdue it. And what's the promise? Remember the word Moses' servant of the Lord commanded you saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest, which means the people of God in the presence of God are a people who are given rest. Rest—the great longing of our heart. This is the theology and the application of it—is to find rest. And so, what is it that God gives David here? He gives him, and with him, all of Israel, rest. It's the fulfillment of the hope of Moses and that generation. So it means more than David is on vacation. God has given him rest. He has fulfilled in David the promise of creation made to the patriarch and longed for by the people of God. Now this hope of rest is ultimately fulfilled in his son Solomon, right? And this will come up later with the Davidic covenant in in 1 Kings 5. This is now the Lord my God, this is Solomon talking, has given me rest on every side. And so what does he do? Having been given rest, he builds God a house. You see the connections between what Solomon does in 1 Kings 5 and what David does in 2 Samuel 7. So he rightly understands that there is no ultimate rest apart from the presence of God, which is why he wants to build a permanent lodging, a house for God. Now, this desire to build a temple for the Lord uh, is impressed on David's heart, is a good thing. It's a good thing to desire. He wants to build a permanent sanctuary. In fact, Nathan the prophet, this is the first time we've met him. He'll show up later, of course, with the Bathsheba narrative. Uh, But he encourages David to pursue this. Seek the Lord's favor in this. But as we discover, good things are not always God's things. So that is David's plan. Let's look quickly at God's preference. This is verse 4 to 7. Despite David's great idea, and it is a good idea, God says no. Now, can we just pause here? I don't think this is the main point of the text. The main point of the text is the Davidic covenant we see uh, uh, later on. But I do think it's worth adding a footnote here. And that is that just because he desires a good thing, for whatever reason, that doesn't necessarily mean it is the will of God. This is something Christians really struggle with. And David is rightly confused about this. Sometimes... God says no to good things. Can I give you just three examples? We can think of a thousand. Let me give you just three examples I've seen over the years of ministry and just life. One is marriage. There might be some here who, who think, I just don't know why it is that God won't send me one who I can marry. I seem to do everything right. I follow all the rules. How come marriage always seems to be far away? I want a good thing, but for now, God is saying no. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with marriage or anything wrong with you. Sometimes right now, for whatever reason, it is no. What about children? The heartbreak of infertility That can last for decades and break a couple's heart is very real. And what adds to it is is those who have no desire to be parents, let alone godly parents, seem to readily have kids. And here we have a godly man and woman, a husband and wife struggling with infertility. And it is a struggle to know that a good thing that God blesses, for whatever reason within the will of God, the mystery desire of God, He says no. No. What about revival? I don't know if you're all aware of it, but for the last year and a half, Christianity has been struggling in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Our churches are struggling because we're scared to death to be around each other. I get all of that. But we've seen the slow yet steady decline of Christianity in the West. And we're thinking, why won't God just send us revival? Why won't he just do it? I was sharing with someone this morning that I've been reading Isaiah 6. We typically think of Isaiah 6 as, Here I am, Lord, send me. That awesome scene. But you remember the message that God gives Isaiah? You're going to go, and they're not going to hear you. You're going to keep preaching, and they won't receive you. You're going to keep proclaiming, and they will reject you. That's the message you're going to give. And man, it feels like that today, doesn't it? Revival is a good thing. But sometimes God says, No, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul struggling with this very uh, uh, issue in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, Here you remember he has the thorn in his flesh and and there's a lot of debate exactly what that is. Uh, But he he says, I I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. What did God say? He said, no, no, it's not going to leave you. This is a guy who has healed people simply because they they touched him. This is a guy who got bitten by, uh, I'm sure, a, a cottonmouth out of West Kentucky. He didn't die. He didn't suffer. He didn't swell up nothing. And here he has a thorn in, in his flesh. I assume that means uh, local church deacons. But some say it's malaria or blindness or, or uh, I saw one guy try say it was migraines. They're like, I get that. But, but whatever it might be, God said, no. Why? My grace is sufficient for you. So can I just briefly, again, it's not the main point of the text, but I think it's worth highlighting while we are here. Just, just what do we do when God says no to good things? I want to give you just, just three points very briefly. First of all, choose God's wisdom over yours. God's with, look. I'm a dad. And sometimes I know, hey, son, hey, daughter, this ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. And, and what are they going to do typically? They're going to figure out it didn't work. And boy, Christians do the same thing. I can't give you all the answers of why some things happen and some things don't. That good desires don't become reality. I don't understand all of that, but I do know that God is wise, and He knows all things. Trust in His wisdom over our desires, even when they are good desires. Secondly, uh, we need to choose the sufficiency of God's grace and God's goodness. Isn't that what Paul had to learn with his thorn in the flesh? That God is good. And that God is gracious. And then one of the things we do is we, we, we think that because I've been robbed of something that is good, God must be angry at me. God must despise me. God must have turned against me. That is not what you're going to find in Scripture. At times, believers suffer. At times, prayers don't get answered the way we desire them to be. And that's okay. That does not call into question God's goodness and His grace. Thirdly, uh, choose God's truths over satanic lies. Again, I must not be good enough. God doesn't love me like those other Christians. My prayers are ineffective and God doesn't hear me. Those are lies that do not come from the throne room of God. David desires a good thing, but God says no. God's timing matters more than David's desire. But nevertheless, in verses four to seven, God comes to Nathan the prophet and explains why he doesn't want, God, doesn't want David to build God a temple, a house. And he gives three reasons. Let's look at them real briefly. The first one is God prefers to dwell with his people. I find this fascinating. Theologians call this the incarnational principle. That is to say that, that, that God chooses to dwell with his people as they are living. Quoting J.D. Greer in his commentary on this text says, God wants to be in the same condition his people are in. If God's people are in tents, God will be in a tent too. When was God's people in a tent? In the Exodus, right? And when they are wandering or homeless or in pain, he wants to be among them. He wants to dwell with them and share in their condition. When Jesus came to this earth, did you notice he wasn't living in a palace? He was a carpenter who hung out with fishermen and was critical of religious people because that's the world that he was in. It's the incarnational principle. The tabernacle is a glorified tent. When the people were in the wilderness, God dwelled as they dwelt. Here God is reminding David that the time is not yet right to dwell in a permanent building. That time will come, but it will come with Solomon. Secondly, God says that he doesn't need a building. There's a thought. God reminds David that he is creator, not subject to creation. He cannot be bound by walls, doors and curtains. This shows up in in, in 1 Kings, right? When God went, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house, this is Solomon, that I have built. I've told you all this before, that when I was growing up, we would go to church, and I was convinced that we were going literally to God's house. Because everyone said, hey you going to God's house today. Welcome to God's house this morning. It's good to worship in God's house, right? And I thought, well, it must be God's house, right? I use similar language at mom and dad's house. Hey, welcome to my house. It's good to have you all at my house. We're going to uh, play some, some music in my house. We're going to go play ball outside my house, right? It made sense to me as a little kid. And so I thought, man, God must be really lonely between Monday and Saturday because, you know, no one's coming on Wednesday nights anyways. He must be really lonely, right? Well... That is a child's mind, but we laugh at that because it's ridiculous. God isn't bound by lumber and brick and a steeple. No, no, God is too great for that. But this is the beauty of the paradox of God's presence. In a very real sense, God cannot be limited by creation. At the same time, God chooses to dwell with his people. If you can reconcile those, you're a better theologian than I'll ever be, but I think that is a beautiful paradox in Scripture. God is beyond, and yet God is with us. Uh, now, we see that in the incarnation of Christ, of course, but here, here we, it is a beautiful picture. We see that God with his people, yet is greater than all things. Thirdly, God will build David a house. This is the message starting in verse 8 and the rest of the passage, isn't it? David comes thinking God needs his help. In the end, God shows David, no, you need mine. I don't need a house. I don't need anything from you. Let me bless you. That leads finally to God's promise. If you were to, let's say, watch a a series, a television series of 10 seasons, right? Just say it's 10 seasons. And someone were to say, hey, what is the show about? Summarize the, the the story arc of that show. Chances are you will give a very broad overview emphasizing specific moments and episodes is that is, is that fair to say right you you can't do 24 episodes of season three and give it in all details when you try to summarize ten ten 10 seasons right the same is true with the bible you can read through and get every little detail you want but if you were to give an overview of the bible there are certain high points you would point out to this passage particularly verses 8 to 17 is one of those points you would want to highlight. Oftentimes we we skip it, and I'm guilty of that. But it is one of those episodes, if you will, of the Bible. The Davidic covenant is essential to understanding the rest of the Bible. The New Testament and the claims of Christ make little sense without it. So what is the Davidic covenant? Let us start there. In short, the Davidic covenant is a continuation and enhancement of the Abrahamic covenant. It assures Israel that God has and will keep his promises and that God will bless the earth through the Messiah who will be the son of Abraham, the son of David. In essence, that's what it is. But but notice how it's laid out here. First of all, we get God's presence in the Davidic Covenant, verses eight and nine. Notice there it says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep. You shall be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. That is the promise of God's presence. And given this, that it's given to David. David and his house, which comes later. It means that the covenant isn't just made it to David, it's made it to David's people, Israelites. So, so this is the promise of God's presence. This will be important when Babylon comes and destroys the temple. There is this fear God has abandoned us, but the promise is made: I will never leave you. To the point I will become one of you in Christ. Secondly, God's power, verses 10 and 11. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. By the way, y'all who are coming on Wednesday nights, that word plant should stick out to you in our study of Genesis. We we can't explore that now because we will be here for three hours, but um, that is something worth highlighting. Uh, Violent men shall inflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Notice here, it is God's power. Again, there is a lack of chronology. I think is important because, because God has given David victory over the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Philistines and, and all of them. But this is ultimately a messianic hope. In David, the earth will find rest. I don't know if, 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 if you're aware of this, but the earth still ain't at rest. If you're unaware of this, I'd like to introduce you to a thing called a 24-hour news cycle. It is, it is awful. You should avoid it, right? I'd also like to introduce you to Facebook. Whenever it works, it is awful. You, know, you should probably avoid that at times too. Just like people's pictures of their grandkids and then get off. That, that's about all, all you need to do. Uh, certainly, you don't want to watch highlights of Louisville at this time. But, but this hope of no more violence, no more suffering, no more injustice— can only come by God's power, not by man's ability. I don't know if you've noticed, there's been a lot of politicians, been a lot of leaders, a lot of economies, a lot of nations, a lot of kingdoms, and we are still at unrest. The Davidic covenant is that God's power will bring rest. Finally, God's promise, verses 12 to 17, uh, is is that when David dies, his dynasty will continue First, through his heir Solomon, we learn later, but ultimately through the Messiah. The great promise is that David's throne shall be established forever. And this foundational promise is, is, is what leads us into the New Testament. Again, when Babylon comes and wipes out the, the, the Davidic dynasty, Israel is in a panic. God has abandoned us. And so what you get then, particularly in 1 Chronicles, because we skipped that part because it's all genealogy, is son of, son of, son of, son of, why? Because the whole point of First and Second Chronicles is a retelling of the history of Israel so that, so that they know, one of the last books written in the Old Testament, they know God has not abandoned his people. Matthew opens up the New Testament, the genealogy. We skip over it because of all the son of, son of, son of. But Matthew is showing us God has not abandoned his people. And I can prove it to you. There is a man named Jesus of Nazareth, who is the son of Abraham, the son of David. God builds David a house, not one made of cedar, not one we could call a temple, but one we call a dynasty. You see, in Babylon, God destroyed the throne of David, but he did not destroy the line of David. That line is climaxed in Christ himself. Actually, I find this fascinating. If, if you were to take the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, you're going to see some parallels. Here they are. You see that the Davidic covenant has a great name, so does the uh, Abrahamic covenant. They both mention children, right? So so David already has kids in the narrative, but, but one in particular is going to be the son of promise that's going to come uh, uh, in, in Solomon. Uh, promise of land, right? So you get land there in verse 10 and you get the curse on one's enemies and rest from one's enemies. It's Almost like the writer of 2 Samuel has read his Bible before. Or like the person who wrote the whole Bible knew what he was doing. We could do this similar with God's covenant with Israel in general. Uh, God's firstborn son in Exodus 3, right? This is the context of the burning bush. What, what, what does God promise David? A firstborn son. A, a son who would inherit Royal and holy nation, Exodus 19. Remember that the foot of the mountain where, where Moses is about to ascend to receive the Ten Commandments. says, I will make you a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. What do we see in David as the royal priesthood? He is king. He's the royal king. A royal priest, rather. Finally, the divine promises you get in chapter 23, when I have time to look at that in Exodus, we get the divine promises we see in this passage here. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. He's putting the Bible together. That's what the Davidic covenant is. What does the Davidic covenant mean? Remember, this is a crucial episode in the meta-narrative of Scripture. Thus, it connects with what came before and it launches the story ahead. The Bible is the unified story of God of how he redeems humanity through the finished work of Christ at the cross. The Old Testament is the story of Messiah anticipated. In Genesis 3.15, we discover the first promise of God that he will be born of a virgin, a man. In chapter 12 of the Abrahamic covenant, we discover he will come as a man, as a Jewish man who will bless the world. In Genesis 49.10, we discover he will come with a tribe of Judah. In 2 Samuel 7, what do we see is that this man of Judah will come from the line of David. He will be heir to the throne and his kingdom will be cosmic and eternal without end. Notice how much of this text emphasizes Solomon, the heir of David, right? So you can go down there, that, that verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. This is about Solomon, right? He says, he will build a house for my name. Not you, not you. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever and then and then everyone has ever understood this this promise is made immediately in solomon's way prophecy works there's an immediate fulfillment there's an ultimate fulfillment solomon is the first step of fulfilling that he comes and establishes the line of david But the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ, one whom calls God father and yet does not need to be chastised, does not need to be disciplined. This is why the language switches from Solomon to a future kingdom. And it is why when Jesus is teaching in Israel, he reminds them there is one here who is greater than Solomon. And it's me. So Solomon needs to be disciplined, but not the Messiah. He will have a house forever. He will have a kingdom forever. He will have a throne forever. And we wonder why when Jesus is baptized and he launches his ministry in Matthew 4, what's his message? It isn't God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It isn't God wants to be your co pilots No, it's repentance. The kingdom is here. And I'm the king. Why does this matter? I want to answer that just briefly as we can. We're short on time, not that I care. But let us briefly look at why all of this matters. Can we start here? It matters because the Davidic covenant reminds us that God has not abandoned humanity even in the world where humanity has largely abandoned God. That does not abandon us. What you'll find, particularly in the Old Testament, is that God is constantly having to remind his people that he hasn't forgotten his promises. Like, you ever, you ever have this conversation with, with your kids, right? Look, look when they're, I'm hungry, I can't make it to dinner. Give me chocolate and candy, right? You're like, look, look, I apparently need to remind you of this. I will not, as far as I can control the situation, let you starve to death. I will starve to death before you do. You will not die. Why do we have to remind our kids that? Why do Christians have to be reminded that God hasn't abandoned them? That God hasn't forsaken us? Yet he does it throughout the Old Testament. How many times in our study on Wednesday nights in Genesis, God's like, hey, Abraham, remember that part where I said I'm going to bless you through your wife? Stop giving her away to strange men. Do you forget that part? Right? I wrote it down. Right? I've I've, I've carved it into your favorite trees. You don't forget. What is God doing here? Hey, David, you need to know I haven't forgotten the promises I've made. Why? Because the people of God need to know that, as he says here, that That he will not abandon his people, even when it feels as if the people have abandoned him. That is what the text means by the steadfast love of God. Secondly, the gospel is rooted in faith, not works. You notice here that what does David have to do with this? All he has to do is receive the gift, right? David had a plan. He's going to impress God, right? He's going to round up the boys, bring the Ark of the Covenant here. He's got the fancy tent set up. He goes, no, 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 this ain't good enough, right? Because I'm the king. I'm the man. Look at me. I'm going to impress you, all right? Now watch this. I'm going to build a big old building, and God's going to be proud of me, and I'm going to impress him. And it's like what modern Christians do all the time, right? What does God say? I don't need any of that. Here's a gift. Take it or reject it. You choose. It's grace. So too, God still offers us by the blood of Christ. Grace. You can receive it and you are free. And all the promises of God are yours, not because you're worthy of it, it not, but because of the steadfast love of God. Or you can reject it and heap judgment upon your head. But here's a gift. Here's a gift. Thirdly and finally, and this probably shouldn't be new to you. You've heard me say it a thousand times. Jesus is a true and better David. For generations, humanity has turned to leaders, governments, systemic change, elections, and economies to save us. David was a great king, but he was no savior. Jesus was a king whose kingdom is bigger than governments, borders, and policies. His kingdom welcomes sinners of all races, all ethnicities, all backgrounds, and all struggles. David may have defeated the Philistines, but God in Christ has defeated death. He has defeated my sin. He has conquered Satan himself. Jesus is a true and greater David. In fact, it won't be long in our study of David. What will we find? We will find him triumphing over his enemies, but succumbing to a depraved heart. We need one who is truly greater than he. And when Christ shows up, he speaks. Of a kingdom. He opens eyes. He raises the dead. He bears a cross. And he accomplishes all that David never could. And his throne knows no end. It's no accident then. That Jesus marches to Jerusalem. Much in the same way David had marched to Jerusalem in a parade. Yet what is it that the people are shouting? They are shouting there with palm branches in hand. What does it say? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. I I don't know what your needs are. I don't know what your struggles are. I I, I don't know where life is going to take you over the next week or so. But I do know that there is hope in Christ, believer and non-believer, that is yours. Take. It is free. If you will receive it. Will you receive it? Let's pray.